Today on Southeast Asia Radio, we're covering corruption accusations in Malaysia, diplomatic fallout from Taiwan's elections, and an about-face in marijuana legalization in Thailand. I'm Javid Kitsan. Today is January 25th, 2024. Greg and Alina had me on today to discuss the Southeast Asia program's upcoming report on U.S.-Japan-Philippine cooperation in a Taiwan contingency. Let's start off with the headlines first. Today, I'm joined by David Dennis, Senior Associate with the Asia Group and a former intern for the Southeast Asia Program. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. Everything good? Yeah, no complaints. A little winter weather, but all good. I'm not built for winter weather. I nearly slipped on the ice multiple times this weekend because I've been way too lazy to get snow boots. I feel you, yeah. You can take me out of the south, but you can't take the south out of me, so. Same with me in California. And with that, let's jump into this week's headlines. First up in recent news, two former Malaysian prime ministers have found themselves in hot water amid a slew of corruption scandals. After serving 17 months of his 12-year sentence, former Malaysian prime minister Najib Razak, who was convicted and imprisoned for his role in a multi-billion dollar graft scandal, has little prospect for a royal pardon, experts are now saying. The scandal, known as 1MDB, is not the only charge being brought against Najib by the Malaysian government. He faces three additional charges, including illicitly receiving 1MDB funds, money laundering, and committing breach of trust involving government funds. Wow, he's really racked up those charges, hasn't he? Right? The Malaysian Pardons Board will meet to begin reviewing his case this month, but Najib's lawyers claim to be in the dark about meeting logistics. This was famously dramatized in September 2023 with Netflix debut of Man on the Run, a documentary covering Najib and the IMDB scandal. I'm sure he's not too happy about that one. Surely not. And the ex-prime minister's lawyer recently filed an application with the high court to remove the Netflix documentary on the grounds that it is prejudicial towards ongoing corruption trials. Has the court made their decision about the documentary? The court hasn't made a call on the case yet, but experts say that there is no reason to ban the Netflix film as the documentary isn't unconstitutional and isn't defamatory towards Najib. It is making all kinds of headlines, though. But you know, Najib wasn't the only former Malaysian official in the headlines this week. Right. Former Prime Minister Ismail Sabri Yaakob has been questioned by Malaysian anti-graft investigators as part of a probe into alleged misconduct involving 700 million ringgit or 150.86 million US dollars spent on government publicity during a previous administration. The Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission also announced last week that it had recorded a statement from Yaakob in relation to the funds. The accusations come during a crackdown by Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim on alleged graft among top politicians as part of his plan to weed out corruption in high levels of government. Another politician being targeted by Ibrahim's crackdown is former finance minister Daim Zanuddin, who has also been linked to accusations of money laundering and abuses of power during his time as minister. Daim has claimed that the accusations are part of a political witch hunt orchestrated by Ibrahim against him and has officially challenged the graft probe. The High Court is set to decide whether to accept Daim's opposition, but the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission has already frozen his assets and begun questioning the ex-minister's wife and son. On to our next story, Thailand is once again making headlines with its policy on marijuana. A recent draft bill published in early January seeks to ban the use of cannabis for recreational use. Really? It's only been like 18 months since Thailand decriminalized it. Yep. Thailand's new government has been committed to restricting the use of marijuana over concerns of addiction and drug abuse. Hmm. What'll the new consequences be? It's looking quite serious, actually. Those caught using cannabis extracts containing more than 0.2% THC will be subject to a fine of up to 60,000 baht, which is 1,720 USD, under the proposed bill. Those selling cannabis or its extracts for recreational purposes can face up to one year in jail, 100,000 baht in fines, or both. It seems like it'll be a big adjustment for a country that has been freely using and growing marijuana since June 2022. That year, government officials even proposed giving free cannabis plants for people to grow as household crops. Right. 
And since then, more than a million people have registered to grow the plant, and 6,000 cannabis shops have opened across the country. Weed dispensaries can be found on every corner, and dispensaries have even been added as a stop on sightseeing tours. Oh, wow. A reversal in decriminalization could be a big blow to the Thai economy. This year, the Thai Chamber of Commerce estimated the cannabis sector could be worth 1.2 billion U.S. dollars by 2025. And that's why some groups are calling for great regulations on cannabis instead of criminalization to protect local businesses and the tourism industry. With a lot of mixed opinions, it's not certain that this bill will pass. The health ministry could still make changes to the legislation before it needs to go through the cabinet and then parliament. It's all talk until the bill is finalized and approved, so let's keep our eye on it. On to our last story. Did you hear that Philippine Defense Secretary Gibo Tidoro accused a Chinese foreign ministry official of low and gutter level talk? Yeah, I heard about this. It's among the latest spats between the Philippines and China amid a particularly tense couple of months. The Chinese ministry official told Philippine President Marcos to, quote, read more books to properly understand the ins and the outs of the Taiwan issue, end quote. That is some charged language right there. I'm assuming this is in response to President Marcos congratulating Taiwan's president-elect Lai on winning the recent election. Right. And afterward, China summoned the Philippine ambassador and warned them not to play with fire. Seeing to diffuse some of the tension, the Philippines foreign ministry reaffirmed that the country is committed to the one China policy and stressed that the congratulatory message was to recognize the shared interests between the Philippines and Taiwan, where 200,000 overseas Filipino workers reside. Either way, it doesn't seem like the Philippines is taking China's warning too seriously. The Philippines has just signed a memorandum of understanding on defense cooperation with Canada, which could later lead to a troop pact between the two countries. Canada has been supportive of the Philippines in contestations against China before denying the legitimacy of China's South China Sea claims and allowing the Philippines to use their dark vessel detection system to combat potentially unauthorized fishing by China. The timing of the new Philippines and Canada MOU sounds a bit like playing with fire to me, but notably, in an effort to calm the flames, the Philippine and Chinese foreign ministries have recently agreed to friendly talks to better manage maritime communication and address disputes in the South China Sea. Let's just hope those friendly talks this time skip the gutter talk. (laughs) Yeah, we can hope. Those are the headlines. Thanks so much for stopping by, David. Thanks for having me. Up next, I'm chatting with Greg and Alina, so stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio, folks. I am Greg Poling with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined as ever by Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Howdy, Alina. Hey, Greg. And our guest today is another bit of our in-house talent. We have Jaffet Kitson, who is a research associate with our Southeast Asia program here. Hey, Jaffet. Hi, Greg. Thanks so much for having me. Cool to be here. Pleasure. For those of you who don't know, just rewind your podcast about 30 seconds, because Jaffet will have been the host as he is for, I don't know, what, the last year? Six last months, year, how long have you been hosting the, the intro? It's been since June, I think. All right. So Jaffet has been the voice of the news section on South Asia Radio. Now he's joining as a subject matter expert for the first time in this <laughs> section, because you have done the holiday specials as yes, well. Yes, you've done the holiday special. So the reason that Jaffet is our subject matter expert today is because Jaffet is the lead author on a report that the South Asia program is publishing this month called Sustaining the U.S.-Philippines-Japan Triad, which was basically the second, a sequel to a report we did a year ago on U.S.-Philippine-Japanese alliance coordination. This one is based on the outcomes of a workshop that our team held in Manila in September of 2023 with U.S. and Japanese experts flown into Manila. And it focused, I'd say, about half on South China Sea, East China Sea, and Gray Zone coercion, 
and half on Taiwan contingencies, which is something that was not the case in our first iteration of this triad that we held in 2022. But I am the other author, so it would be inappropriate for me to host my own discussion. So Alina, over to you. You're just trying to get out of this, Greg. I prep as much as I need to, and in this case, not a lot. I'm sure Jafet wrote most of it, was uh, the brains behind a lot of the text in the report. So maybe Jafet, if I could get you to give us a little bit of background about the report, because I think what really jumped out at me from reading it was this makes no bones about China being a challenge, if not an outright threat, which has resulted in this triad that is the subject of the report. Is it all about China? Not necessarily all about China. I think what we found a lot with this report is the importance of the triad not only being connected with the traditional hubs and spokes model, but being connected to each other. For instance, the United States and the Philippines and the United States and Japan enjoy a very robust connection. Their militaries and their bureaucracies are fairly more in sync, whereas Japan and the Philippines, for instance, are only starting to take off. They're just now starting their negotiations on a reciprocal access agreement, right? And it's still in the works. They still have to go through all the negotiations. They have to figure out how that will all mesh. The connective tissue we found is still relatively new with the Philippines and Japan, and it was something that a lot of our discussants were talking about. And it's really important, we found, that these connections grow stronger over time because Japan and the Philippines are at the front lines of serious territorial disputes with China, both the Senkaku Islands and with the South China Sea. So their coordination, their communication with each other, and the interoperability of their armed forces are of paramount importance. Alina, I, I just said, look, I'm not the hawk that Jaffa does. Everybody knows that I would never say an ill word about Chinese foreign policy. There's a ton of stuff that goes on in, in both sets of bilateral alliances here, U.S. Phil, U.S. Japan, and the emerging trilateral that has nothing to do with China, you know, HADR and so on. But I think we would be fooling ourselves in readers if we didn't say that China is the necessary, maybe insufficient, but the necessary component here. Without the shared threat perception of Chinese revisionism, particularly in the South China Sea building over the last decade, it's really hard to imagine the revitalization of the U.S.-Philippine alliance we've seen, or this proliferation of Philippine security ties with other like-minded partners, Japan may be foremost among those. I mean, the report talks about China's behavior, particularly in the South China Sea, but also in the East China Sea as being a trigger for closer cooperation between all three partners. But would you say that this also has to do with President Ferdinand Marcos's coming into power in the Philippines, which has moved the dial a little bit, particularly with regard to closer U.S.-Philippine ties, but also increasingly Philippines-Japan ties. Yes, President Marcos has been a very sharp departure from his predecessor, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, in terms of foreign policy, bringing the Philippines closer to Japan and to the United States because of perceived threats to Philippine sovereignty, Philippine security. There have been a bunch of incidents in the South China Sea with the lasers and the water cannons that have intensified his need to defend Philippine space. There's been a lot of talk lately about reinforcing a second Thomas Shoal, creating a more permanent structure there. And a lot of it would not be possible without assistance from Japan and the United States. The Philippines is not particularly strong by itself. It has a shock-sensitive economy. It doesn't have a lot of critical minerals laid out, not very big on natural resources, so it'll rely on its allies to 
push through. And President Marcos understands the importance of that, which is why he's been shoring up ties so strongly in the last couple of years. I would just caution that we can, and I think often the press does overemphasize the personal role of President Marcos in this. Marcos has seized and accelerated trends that were already well underway. And remember, the Philippines and Japan have been talking about a visiting forces agreement, or what's now going to be called the RAA, the Reciprocal Access Agreement in, in Japan's preferred nomenclature, since at least 2015 under the Aquino government. Right. The Duterte administration deepened security ties with Japan considerably, even as it was pushing the U.S. to arm's length. And I think famously, the 2016, late 2016 incident where Duterte made his first visit to Beijing, announced the end of the U.S. alliance effectively, and then a month later flew to Tokyo. And then Prime Minister Abe got him to say, never mind, the Americans are still really important to all of us. And so Japan helped save the U.S. alliance under the Philippines. And by the last year of the Duterte administration, China's increasing aggression in the gray zone in the South China Sea had become so impossible to ignore that we started to see Duterte allowing the members of his cabinet and the armed forces of the Philippines to revisit and deepen the U.S.-Philippine alliance, which ultimately culminated in then Secretary of Defense Austin's first trip to the region, where he met with Duterte and got him to rescind the threat to abrogate the U.S.-Philippines visiting forces agreement. So, yes, Marcos has taken this thing and run with it. But I really think he is an avatar at this point of the preferences of both the Philippine public and his own government and security services, which we saw throughout the Duterte administration. So he's been the tree of life. Sorry, that was a terrible avatar joke. I but. know. Boo. Well, look, he is not King Marcos. He's President Marcos. And he wouldn't be able to do these things if they weren't already politically popular. And that's not because of the U.S. and it's not because of Japan. It's because of China. Let me push you a little on the economic piece, Jafet. You mentioned some of the barriers to the Philippines wanting to be this equal partner, and you listed a few of those constraints. Am I not right in recounting that one of the Philippines' biggest exports to China has been nickel? And I think to a certain extent, refined copper as well. So in terms of natural resources, the Philippines has a lot of it. One of the largest reserves of nickel in the world, if I'm not mistaken. And a lot of it goes to China. And China, if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, still remains the Philippines' largest trading partner. Yes, China remains a very significant trading partner to the Philippines. What place it is, I'm not entirely sure right now. But yes. China is the Philippines' largest trading partner, has been for, I don't remember, the last five years, 2018, I think, it might have flipped. But the U.S. is the largest investor. If you kind of look net annual over the last 10 years, U.S. is a larger investor than China, I should say. Japan and Korea invest more. The U.S. is the largest source of development assistance, which is rare, actually, when you look at China's development assistance across the region. China provides more development assistance to every country in Southeast Asia, except for the Philippines provides more investment over the last 10 years, I believe, in every country in South Asia, well, more than the U.S., except for the Philippines and Singapore. And the trade numbers are actually still relatively close. So the Philippines is one of the few places in Southeast Asia where the U.S. is still competitive and arguably creates a lot more jobs for Filipinos than China does, which is one of the problems of the Duterte era, that the implicit quid pro quo was that that was going to change. China was going to finally start investing, lending, and providing ODA 
and it never did. So the Philippines is one of the places in South Asia, it's not the place in South Asia, where I'd argue that economic over-dependence on China is the least evident. And now given the slowdown of the Chinese economy and the very rapid slowdown of BRI, I don't think we're ever going to see a point at which China is economically dominant in the Philippines. That that whatever window of opportunity there was has now passed. The big crux of the economic argument we found was that a lot of our discussions saw that U.S. involvement in the area economically wasn't as strong as it could be. IPEF was a welcome direction and the Philippines and a lot of its neighbors really appreciated the administration's outreach. But a lot of them remain frustrated by the lack of free trade agreements that the Biden administration is not currently pursuing. And we thought that free trade agreements, closer economic linkages would do far better to shield the Philippines from economic coercion. So I guess this is what you mean in your report when you say that the economic dependence of the Philippines on China is being hotly contested because of these balances in investment and trade flows that don't necessarily prioritize China. Is that right? What we are arguing and what we heard from Philippine counterparts, both in this workshop and in the previous one in 2022, is that we need to remain vigilant. China would try to use economic coercion in order to affect political decision making in Manila in any crisis, whether over the South China Sea or Taiwan. We've seen it in the past. We saw it after Scarborough Shoal in 2012 with the abuse of phytosanitary restrictions to ban Philippine agricultural exports and the canceling of Chinese tourists to the Philippines. But the Philippines is less vulnerable to that economic coercion than many of its neighbors. And it's incumbent on the US and Japan, along with other partners, to help it remain resilient to potential Chinese economic coercion so that the Philippines has the agency to make decisions in a crisis in its own national interests, not in China's. So what would it take then for the Philippines to be a quote-unquote equal partner in this triad of alliances. This was something that I thought was discussed pretty at length during the conference. And I think the experts said something along the lines of worrying about the United States commitment to the Philippines, where in fact, I think we should also be thinking about the Philippines' responsibilities to the United States. Article 4 and Article 5 of the Mutual Defense Treaty are still applicable to the Philippines, and it requires a lot of modernization for its own armed forces to be able to respond to these sorts of threats, to be able to mount a response in case the United States is in need of assistance. It's the reciprocality of it that I think a lot of Philippine stakeholders bring up that is important on both ends. There's a lot of ways we can define this. I mean, we've heard Philippine officials for years, and it was a favorite line of both Duterte and Marcos to say that the alliance needs to become more equal. And nobody's ever defined what exactly that means. But I would argue that the progress we've seen since late 2022 clearly is making the alliance more equal. I think it's going to remain a work in progress, but the conclusion of the mutual defense guidelines, the first ever mutual defense guidelines earlier this year, was the first time the U.S. and the Philippines has ever actually laid out a framework for what each side thinks the alliance is for, right? The U.S. never asked the Philippines what the alliance was for under the Cold War. Arguably, it didn't need to be said. We all knew it was a Soviet threat. But also, arguably, the U.S. wouldn't have cared because the alliance at that time was effectively a rental agreement. The U.S. paid X amount of money in both security systems and ODA in order to have unlimited access to U.S. basing in the Philippines. That's not politically sustainable 
I mean, th- that era ended in 1991. And so now they're building an alliance that is politically sustainable on both sides, which means at least the decision making has to be equal. The Philippines has to have a veto over everything. And we're seeing that with EDCA, with the implementation of the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. We're seeing it with the negotiations on the JASOMIA, the General Security of Military Information Agreement, that the Philippines actually has a window into the classified military intelligence that the US and Japan and other partners regularly shares. And we're seeing it in this proliferation of political and military dialogues between the two sides. It's also one of the reasons that I think kind of at the core of this report, largely implied, although we do say explicitly at least once, it's why we need to de-emphasize Taiwan when talking about the U.S.-Philippine alliance. Yeah, Taiwan matters to the Philippines. Yeah, Taiwan matters to the U.S. But it is not the most important thing in the U.S.-Philippine alliance. And if American officials ever talk about it as if it were the most important thing in the U.S.-Philippine alliance, then they can probably kiss the alliance goodbye because Philippine officials and the Philippine public understandably need to know that the alliance first and foremost is about the defense of the Philippines, not to use the Philippines for some third-party intervention. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Taiwan because I think this plays into the whole Taiwan contingency. And it's very clear that I think both sides, uh, Philippines and the United States, are still trying to work out the details following on from the expanded EDCA sites as well as bilateral defense guidelines. Are there any updates as to whether there has been any resolution or any steps closer to resolution of an understanding on what a Taiwan contingency would entail on the Philippine side? I think the lack of communication on that has been the problem that was tackled quite a bit here. It would be assumed that the Philippines would be a big launching point for any sort of humanitarian evacuation from Taiwan. In case of military intervention from the United States, it would more likely than not be a staging point for U.S. and Philippine forces in the case of a contingency. It would also be a big launching point for general evacuations for Southeast Asian countries at large, even though the Philippines hosts a very significant number of overseas workers in Taiwan, the other Southeast Asian countries do as well, and the Philippines would likely be their safe point home. The extent to which this has been discussed is unclear right now. I don't think it has been talked to at depth. A lot of it is hazy in President Marcos's own security guidelines, the security posture for the Philippines for the year. Taiwan was only mentioned in a brief paragraph, recognizing that its proximity would drag the Philippines into any sort of conflict or contingency, but not necessarily specifying what its role might be. It was telling throughout our workshop that there was very little conversation about the long-range strike capabilities or the air assets that so many, frankly, non-Philippine experts here in D.C. like to put into their war games, as if we're going to use Philippine air bases to launch fighters over Taipei or have the Marines firing naval strike missiles at Chinese vessels in the Bashi Channel. And I'm not going to say that all of that's impossible in certain contingencies. I'm just saying that that's not where the discussion is. It doesn't seem to be where the discussion was among those that we organized. It was very much about, first and foremost, non-combatant evacuation, neo-operations in which Philippine air bases, including the EDCA sites, would be the closest potential airfields in hopefully a non-combatant country. There are 200,000 Filipinos, but there's also half a million other Southeast Asians living in Taiwan, not to mention tens of thousands of citizens of other countries that would need to be evacuated. Beyond that, ISR, um, you know, intelligence collection, and the prepositioning of equipment, all of which, I mean, given Philippine geography and given the relative 
capacity of the Philippine Armed Forces probably makes a lot more sense than combat operations out of Taiwan. But those conversations need to be iterative. They need to happen at the Track 1, Track 1.5, and Track 2 levels. We need to tabletop and wargame them and include them in our dialogues. And all that is now happening. All the official Track 1 dialogues between the U.S. and the Philippines for the last two years seem to now be including more sophisticated discussion of Taiwan contingencies, which I think is another example of the alliance becoming more equal because prior to two years ago, the Americans didn't bother to bring up Taiwan very often in conversations with the Philippines because there was no assumption that the Philippines would be willing to play any role. Now we're having the discussions to baseline what is possible. There's a very real risk of escalation here, right, that I'm sure has been built into the minds of many policymakers on all sides. And I think just as we talk about IPEF in almost every single episode, there's another wildcard to be regularized in our discussions on this podcast as well, I think, and that is the upcoming presidential election. So there are a number of uncertainties here during the workshop that you had, which fed into this report. Were there any considerations, deliberations on, for lack of a better term, guardrails to minimize the risk of escalation, unintended escalation? So continuity was something we talked about quite often. Like you mentioned, with the presidential elections, a lot of partners in the room were concerned about the continuity of U.S. support with a potential new administration, right? And a lot of them referenced the guardrails you were mentioning that preserve the alliance despite rocky relationships under Duterte, for instance, or under Trump, for instance. And the connective tissue that we were talking about at the beginning, the bureaucracy linking together, the militaries linking together and maintaining continued communication and cooperation despite the administration change was really important in case of any sort of contingency. So there's two points that I think relate to this. It came up a lot in our workshop, one of which was semi-resolved. One of them was the issue of continuity. And three of the eight recommendations we have in the report speak to institutionalization of alliance coordination so that a future Trump or a future Duterte would have a harder time undermining the alliance. And this is what we saw the first time under Duterte. A head of state or head of government can, in theory, break the alliance if they want to expend a ton of political energy to do so in pursuit of an unpopular foreign policy. Duterte came closest, but even he wasn't willing to do that in the face of overwhelming opposition within his own government and among the public. And so deepening those ties below the level of the executive make the alliance more resilient and therefore more predictable administration to administration, which matters in all three contexts to these three democratic parties, all of whom have elections regularly and therefore change the foreign policy regularly. The second issue is when we talk about controlling escalation, what we really need to talk about then is what do each of the three partners here, the US, Japan, and the Philippines consider an acceptable risk of escalation given their national interest in a Taiwan contingency. And right now, I would suspect that the U.S. and Japanese appetite for escalation is considerably higher than that of the Philippines. But the Philippines is probably higher than the rest of Southeast Asia because given geographic proximity and long historic ties, I think the Philippine public and elites do believe that the fall of Taiwan would have significant negative repercussions, both on the Philippines' immediate national interest and on broader regional stability. How committed and how broadly shared that consensus within the Philippines is, is an open question. And one of our recommendations speaks exactly to this. 
it's hard for the U.S. and Japan to know how to coordinate with the Philippines on Taiwan until the Philippine strategic community knows what Taiwan actually means to the Philippines. And there's not yet a consensus on that point in Manila. I mean, your point about the Philippines having a considerably higher risk appetite in Southeast Asia is true. I, I just came back from a meeting in Jakarta, Track 2 workshop, and that was very evident as well. We only have a few more minutes, but I wanted to pick up this point about disinformation campaigns. And it seems this has been long running in the Philippines, at least for about five years. And there must be some kind of, not demand for it, but there must be some kind of receptivity for it, for these campaigns to be going on for as long as they have. Can you speak a little to that, Jafet and Greg? Yes. So I think it is really a lot of the Filipino community that is against United States involvement in the region that is against U.S. basing, that was against the expansion of EDCA sites, believing it to be an intrusion on the Philippines' sovereign right to its own territory and to conduct its own foreign policy. And this is something that I feel that Chinese disinformation campaigns have really gotten into, spreading the narrative that the United States is the fomenter of all of this tension. The United States' involvement in the Philippines is creating these bad tensions with China, creating these struggles in the South China Sea between Philippine sailors and Chinese sailors. The fact that China often paints the Philippines as this agentless actor, as an extension of the United States, simply pushing through its agenda in the Indo-Pacific, that seems to strike a chord with certain Filipinos. It's actually one of our recommendations. The triad has all these different challenges in terms of disinformation. I think Japan goes through something similar, same with the United States and most certainly in the Philippines, and coordinating their communication campaigns, harmonized messaging could go a long way in making sure that the message remains steady, that people hear what their intentions are and preserve their own narrative in face of Chinese narratives. I mean, one thing that we certainly see now in the Philippines is a much more concerted and coherent effort by the Marcos government to message, well, to counter-message Chinese mis- and disinformation when it comes to the South China Sea and the U.S. alliance. I think that that has had an effect. It's made it easier for Philippine news outlets to know what's really happening in the South China Sea and therefore cover it. There's less room for rumor-mongering on that front than there was under the Duterte administration. As Jeff said, you still have a somewhat static, I think, sample of Filipinos who are going to see pro-China sentiment as an analog for their anti-U.S. sentiment. And the anti-U.S. sentiment is, of course, deeply rooted in history. But I don't see any evidence that that is resonating more broadly. And particularly since the series of collisions between the China Coast Guard militia and the Philippine Coast Guard in October and November, the willingness of political actors in the Philippines to give voice to that kind of narrative has disappeared. Even, I mean, Marcos, I would argue, the president's sister, who's the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who was the largest critic of EDCA and calling for a kind of a softer president in South China Sea, she continues to ding the U.S. on some things, but I haven't heard her say anything about the South China Sea because it's just not politically saleable anymore. After Chinese vessels started ramming Philippine vessels, there's no space in Philippine elite circles to be pro-China and have any credibility. The final question for me, just because I've been watching a lot of gangster movies, any consideration to change the term triad? I mean, triumvirate sounds a little too out there, but trifecta, triplex, I don't know. Anyway, just a semi-facetious comment from me, but I really enjoyed the frank tone of your report. And 
Tell the audience when we can expect the report to be out, please. I think will we, it be out before the podcast airs? I don't think it will. I think probably sometime late this week or early next week. Please give it a good read. Looking forward to seeing what you all think. And that's all the time we have for, unfortunately, folks. Thanks so much, Jaffet and Greg. Thank you, Alina. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jaffet, for, as Alina said, putting most of the words down on paper for this. It's a pleasure. Happy to do it. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at scaradio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Angus Lamb, Corey Donnelly, and Tappy Lung. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Kitsan. And I'm David Dennis. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.